running out of a lot of mundane items, stuff ran out. But if you're like Joe consumer and you become accustomed to that and then you go to a place and says, well, I don't have any black tires. They're gone. Well, what do you mean they're gone? I'm all, as in they're no longer in the country kind of gone. <laughs> so then their eyes get really wide. Their little fragile uh, consumer paradise has collapsed all the way around them and tough shit. Back to him. My friend Kevin said he came in and couldn't get tires. Yes. We're running out of a lot of mundane items. The demand curve for bicycles was supply for a very anemic demand. Prior to all this COVID thing, you have uh, shops closing left and right because there's no business. Mm -hmm. So a distributor is only going to carry a certain amount of inventory based upon the demand. And if the demand is really low, typically as it was and has been for many, many years, as the, the bike industry is continue to decline. Hi, my mouth, my cat. Yeah. And anyway, then all of a sudden there's a tenfold increase in business and stuff ran out. The reactions that I get from people for me are at least pretty comical because I'm pretty accustomed to not having anything or I don't care if I don't, if I get something or don't get something, you know? So, but if you're like Joe consumer and you press a button and Amazon sends you something or you go into a store and they have things and, and whatnot and you become accustomed to that and then you go to a place and says, well, I don't have any black tires. Now, what do you mean? I'm all, well, there's none left. And they're all, can you order some? Well, no. You can't? No, they're gone. Well, what do you mean they're gone? I'm all, as in they're no longer in the country kind of gone. <laughs> so then their eyes get really wide and they their little fragile uh, consumer paradise has collapsed all the way around them. Hmm. And tough shit. <laughs> Maybe so you happened? had your bike fixed, you know, already had it running, been using it, right? <laughs> well, that, that would have saved you a lot of grief and, dis and disappointment over, you know, uh, this notion that everything can and always will be accessible at all times. Yeah, I always thought I should have spare tubes on hand for the apocalypse. Well, if you ride a bike on the regular, you always have a spare tube because flats are just part of riding bikes. I did a 80 mile ride on Monday and I got two flat tires and I brought two tubes with me. So, you know, I was good and, and no biggie, but I was prepared. And I understand a lot of people, they're not going to be prepared. Um, you know, it's it's created a little ruffling of feathers, I guess. I'm certainly getting a lot of people coming into the shop now that, that really probably didn't have a lot of interest in riding a bike. And, and now they're kind of just doing it out of necessity because they have nothing else to do. They've got cabin fever or whatnot. And mm -hmm. So, I mean, if, I've generally I work on a lot of low end department store bikes because the way I run my business, I charge uh, half or two-thirds of what anybody else charges for labor and I have used parts so you know you can get a derailleur put on your bike and a new cable for like 25 bucks well not you know no one else is going to do that for that cheap so I fix a lot of inexpensive bikes on the regular but some of the stuff now that's been coming in has been is so far gone uh, I try to talk them out of fixing it 
but uh, there's no, there are no bicycles left. Mm. So I see, uh, I see people on Craigslist trying to gouge people for, uh, you know, 350 bucks for a Huffy mountain bike or something like that. That's what's going on right now. So there's a lot of opportunists out there. (laughs) So what, what can you get and what can you not get? Well, I'm out of cruiser saddles. This is nationwide as far as I know. Uh, Baskets, any 26-inch tire that isn't pink or yellow or green or orange or whatever. You want a white wall or a black tire, you want a mountain bike tire or a beach cruiser tire, you can forget it. But luckily, I manufactured my own tires a few years ago, and I have... Uh, a lot of those left, but I sold out of all the black and the black with gum wall, and I have yellow, blue, and, and red. So when people come in now, I go, well, I got yellow, I got blue, I got red, or I got nothing. And mm-hmm. they've been, some of them, they won't, they won't do it. Huh. You know, I had a customer, she's all, I'm not, I don't want that. I don't want red tires. It's ugly. I'm like, all right. So she went to some other shop, and she paid 60 bucks a piece oh, for black God. tires. And I saw that there was a second price tag over the old price tag. They probably had them discounted to like 20 bucks or 15 bucks. And then when they saw the demand was up, they slapped a 59.95 price tag on it. So she paid $120 for two black tires just because the aesthetic didn't appeal. Um, You know, and then I put a tube in and installed them and I charged her 14 bucks to do that. So so a lot of people are, the the problem is, the demand, but also there's something wrong with the, like, they're not, they're no longer manufacturing stuff because, because of COVID. No, they, they manufacture, I make things overseas and I make things here domestically. So your average bicycle shop owner just orders things out of a catalog. But I have, I think I, ha, I'm not trying to be self aggrandizing or whatever, but I have a better idea of how things work because I've had things mass produced. I had 2,500 tires mass produced, okay? And then they're here, I store them at my house, all right? And uh, so I get it, like how stuff works and it takes time. You know, there's no magical fairy kingdom somewhere where you press a button or wave a magic wand and just stuff starts popping out. Uh, you, You know, it takes time to do a production run and then you have to sort through them all, pull out all the blems, because there's always a certain percentage of things that are bad. And then, then you have to put it in a container and then the container has to be full to make their dollar count. And then it has to be brought into the port and then unloaded and put on a truck and then brought to a distributor. And then that distributor puts it on another truck and sends it to the shop. And then it's your turn. So there's a whole supply chain. And I think most people aren't really cognizant of that supply chain and the time frames that it takes. It took me like eight months to have my tires manufactured and brought over here from, from a design concept to making of the tool to production, shipping customs, uh, and then delivering to here, et cetera, et cetera. So say like you've already got the production up and running, they already have the die to make the tire like a beach cruiser tire and they have the material. It's still going to take them, probably a month to run off like 50,000 of those tires, maybe longer. Right. And then, then they've got to put them in a, a, 
shipping container and bring them over here. So it's not, you know, it's not going to happen right away. If, if that same beach cruiser tire was made here in America, it would be $60 a piece and they would be pieces of shit. Okay. Cause we don't make things here. We haven't made things here in so long that the ethos of making things here is completely gone out of our cultural norms. Now it's kitsch. You have like that whole maker movement, you know, where it's like a kitsch thing to make things. It's not, it's not a uh, commonplace anymore. So people always say, oh, it's made in China. It's made in China. It's like, well, yeah, sure. You, the customer, drive the manufacturing overseas because then the price would be prohibitive and then you wouldn't buy it. Your, your huffy beach cruiser that used to be made in America, it would be 600 bucks and the same quality as the one from the 70s and 80s, which was just like, you know, it's a cheap bike. You could beat the hell out of it and it'll still keep going but the overall quality of it's really low. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of, uh, I guess, ignorance from your, your regular consumer. They don't really understand how things are made or why they're made, where they're made. And uh, they don't realize that they're a part of that equation. If you go back in a historical context to like the 70s and 80s, you had all these BMX companies and they, everything was made here. Mongoose, champion cook brothers you know all this stuff and then in 1985 they had this uh uh g5 summit where they purposely devalued the yen and then all of a sudden everything started being moved to uh china and stuff like that you used to have like rims and cranks and stuff and they were way bitching really well made made in japan but once they devalued the yen it uh it moved everything to that model and any of those companies from back then that didn't move their production overseas are gone, every single one of them. So like Mongoose moved overseas and they're still a brand and Schwinn moved overseas. And even though they changed hands a bunch of times, they're still a brand, right? But, you know, CW or Cook Brothers or Gary Littlejohn and stuff, they're all gone. You know, they didn't move their production overseas because people here command a much higher wage and the cost of materials is much higher. So like I make my own frames from scratch with a partner and our material costs to make that frame, not counting our time to buy the metal, bend it, miter it, weld it all together, and then put a finish on it like a powder coat or a nickel plate and put stickers on it. It's, it's a little over $200 just cash outlay, not including the time it takes to manufacture it, all right? So that's a handmade in USA bike. I did a same bike or a very similar bike overseas, a complete bike chrome plated with all the components in a box, less money, 200 bucks for the same, for a rideable bike with every part. And the USA one is just a frame only for the same price. So... I'm working on a stem right now overseas. My material cost to make the stem here, again, not counting time, is about $90. To have the plates machined, the shafts machined, to have the clamps machined, to buy all the hardware. I weld it, I polish it, I take it to a plater, to have it plated, to have the clamps anodized. I'm, my cash outlay, not my time, is $90. I'm getting the same stem, better quality, Full chromoly steel, chrome plated for $12.80 in Taiwan. So that's not a little difference. That's a market difference. That's not 10%. That's, 
That's 90%. So that's why stuff is made over there. Hmm. So why, why are you making stuff then? Because I can, I can, instead of me making a stem here, paying $90 cash to have to, to manufacture it myself, I have to sell it for 200 bucks to make it worth selling. I can take the same stem overseas and sell it for say $60 and make, make um, less profit on each one, but make it affordable and make it accessible to people. Then they could buy it for 60 bucks. And there's way more people that are willing to do that than they are to do, uh, pay 200 for the same thing. But, but you are making bikes. Yeah. They're just expensive. Yeah, I do both. So I brought my BMX cruiser from Taiwan in, in November of 2014. And I did a hundred completes, a hundred frame forks, a hundred extra bars and 200 extra forks. And in, so it's been what, five years roughly, right? Since I've had that available and I've sold, I want to say, I think I've got, I think I sold about 140, 150 of those total. And in the same amount of time, I've sold five made in USA bikes. So what's the, what's the, the pitch for the made in the USA bike? Is well, just, they're made in USA. Yeah. And to me, that doesn't mean anything. Okay. Because you can have something made overseas that's made very well. You can get a $10,000 mountain bike carbon fiber, you know, with full high tier components and it's made in China and it's made well. So culturally the Chinese don't care about quality too much in the things that they manufacture. So if you hold them to a certain standard, then they will conform to that standard. You say there's no business unless we get it to be this level. This is what we want. And this is what we're going to pay for that. And if they agree, then they do it and you have to kind of be on them. Um, uh, in, in, you know, unless they take it upon themselves to make something good and they understand the American market. I I'm mass produced my own board game recently as a side, and that was made in China and it came out very well. The quality was very good. Hmm. Okay. And so there, it's not that just because something is made in China, people draw this erroneous conclusion that it's, that it's crap. And I don't think that's true. I'd say the opposite is true now. I think if it's made here, uh, if you're going to mass produce it, it will be of an inferior quality than something made over there. My Taiwan bike is a much nicer fit and finish. I'd say a much nicer quality product than the one I make myself. Okay, I'm, I'm not a professional frame builder. Uh, I don't manufacture professionally. You know, I fix flat tires all day. I run a bike shop. That's what I do for a living. So, you know, you go to a company and they're, what they do for a living is make bicycles. They're going to make good bicycles. So, yeah, that's pretty much what you do is, uh, I saw your website. It, did it always look like that? Your website, just a sort of a... A mess. A, a, a plea for help, like a... What what would you call that? It's like please don't. I forget what it said, but it was. I don't know either. No, don't call <laughs> me. Don't 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 
Well, right now I put all that up there because uh, I haven't answered my phone at work in two months, at least. So uh, I'm so busy. Um, like on a busy day, I've been in business for over almost 17 years now. So like a busy Saturday, I may get 10, 15 bikes in. And I, at one point, I think I had 70 or 80 bikes in my shop to fix all at once. Wow. Okay. And I'm dealing, I've been dealing with that for months now. And that's fine. It's just a lot of work. And you don't get to take any breaks. Like, I don't have time to peel an orange. All right. There's no time for that. I have to take two hands off my tools to peel an orange. That's a waste of time. Yeah. I don't have time for that. Okay. A phone call. I'm one person is a huge time vampire. It's, it's over and over again. Are you there? I'm here. Do you have any, any bikes? I want a beach cruiser. No, I'm sold out. No. Oh, I have this. How can you fix it? Sure. Well, how long is it going to take? Well, about a week. And then they get upset. And then there's a lot of whining on the <laughs> phone about the time because it's not instantaneous. And then, so I'm rendered inert because I have my hands on a telephone and that five or 10 minutes is enough time for me to true a wheel. But because the phone rings every five minutes on average and every phone call takes two or three minutes, that means 70% of the day would be squandered with my hand on a telephone and nothing would get done. So that was just a, a decision out of uh, being efficient. So uh, there are bigger shops that have two week turnaround times three week turnaround times and they have mechanics and a manager and a sales guy and da da da. And I'm all by myself and I'm getting everything done within a week, sometimes within two, three days. So I don't know that. So, and I just had to make a decision that the phone was not really working right now. And it just, you know, I had to put it on hold and you know, it just, it rings constantly. So I put a message on there. I'm too busy to answer it. You can go to my website, you know, and it says on there, I'm too busy to answer my phone and, Things are going to take a week and, you know, answer your phone when I call you to get your bike, because that's been another huge problem is a, a cell phone culture and people refusing to answer their phone and refusing to listen to their messages. And there's, there's, I've got, I wrote down a list. I have it here. I was going to call people at home today. I've got 10, 12 bikes that have been sitting there for a month. And it's just, you know, wheeling them in and out every day, locking them up every day, putting them back in the shop every day. And how much time does that take? And I, I need the room for more repairs. And I have so many repairs and so many bikes that haven't been picked up that I cannot bring bikes in to sell people. And the demand for bicycles is insane. So I can't meet the demand because people will not answer their phones or listen to their messages and come and get their stuff. And they make a big stink about how long it takes. And then when you call them, they don't, they don't answer their phone. And then it sits there for weeks on end. And I can't chase you. I can't call you and call you and call you and make you pick up your phone. <laughs> so, so that's, that's like aggravating on all kinds of levels to me. And I don't understand the mentality. You know, you're not being hunted by the FBI, you know. You just want people to pick up their bikes? Just pick up your fucking bikes answer your goddamn phone you are not that important you're just a a human being all right you are not some rock star i don't care how many instagram followers you have all right this is dumb 
And then they go, oh, I didn't get the call. But every time I call and give them an ultimatum, I'm taking this thing out of my store on Sunday and I'm going to charge you storage. And then they show up. They always get that call. So, the, but the bike business was bad before and now you're busy. Be, beyond beyond so, busy. So it's, which, but which I don't think, better. honestly, I don't think this is a good thing. I think this is going to kill a lot of shops. So I'm stupid because I won't hire anybody to help me. You know, I'm, I'm going to beat myself to death uh, to just do this and get through it. And I'm not trying to make a martyr out of myself. You know, I mean, Americans were kind of weak. You know, we complain a lot about shit and I don't really like that. So I, I think humanity's endured much greater hardships than you know, being shut in your house for a few weeks or a few months or whatever, or, or whatnot, right? I mean, in the scheme of things, in a historical context, this is, this is pretty small potatoes. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I've seen other shops close down because they feel overwhelmed. And again, they have all these people working for them. So you hire extra people and you're working longer hours you're working before you open and after you close to meet the demand to get everything done. And I'm sure everybody else is encountering the same problems I'm encountering where people don't communicate with you. Uh, they use their cell phone to put up a wall instead of a bridge. And so you have all these repairs that are just piled up that aren't getting, that are just in your way that are done. And you, you've spent all this extra money and time to meet this huge increase in demand, it's an unprecedented demand curve increase. So, and then now, and then you've sold everything. Every bike in there, that pink and green mountain bike that's been in your shop for five years that nobody wanted, well, it's gone. You sold it, right? And you, you, you sold every tire and every tube and every saddle and every pair of grips and you know, and you're like, oh, you're making all this money. But the thing is, is that now when it's over, when it reverts back to some level of normalcy, you, you had increased overhead because you had to pay people to work for you. And now you have to refill your shop, which is typically done in an incremental fashion. You know, you do an order and you add a couple little extra things each time beyond the necessities and you slowly build up your inventory. So I think a lot of shops are going to, have uh, to spend a lot of money to get back to their normal level. And I also think that what we're doing is instead of you've got your little hook out there and you're getting your customers, you know, onesie twosies, which is normal, you've got a drag net and you're getting everybody that maybe had the slightest inclination to ride a bike in your area, all compacted in a short amount of time. I've sold over two years worth of bikes that I normally sell in a two month period. So I think once this is all over, the demand will drop off sharply. And now you're going to be caught in a lurch where you're going to be making way less money than you were normally. Hmm. So I think that's going to work, work against uh, a lot of shops. Um, and they're, you know, they'll probably go under. You also got to think that a lot of people have lost their jobs. Uh, people are working at home now uh, more and maybe permanent. I know some friends that are now permanent working at home, like the office is gone for good and they're working at home from here till eternity, right? 
-hmm. So, uh, and you know, I also know a lot of people that have lost their jobs that they've had for 20 years plus. And that, that's going to affect us. I mean, uh, people are missing their mortgage payments and rent payments and stuff that's starting to happen uh, with a fair amount of regularity. So, and I've also noticed the stress levels of the people that come in are have increased. You know, people are starting to uh, feel those pressures. You know, having a financial pressures is hard. Uh, it pretty much corrupts everything else you do if you can't uh, make enough money to get by. So I think that's going to work, work against everybody. There's going to be a big economic uh, decline. I'm no economist, but, you know, you just kind of read what's going on on the surface. You know, I always talk to people when they come in and ask them how they're doing and stuff. So I don't know. I'm not really sure. Yeah, I, maybe the, you're in kind of the... Uh, one of the better positions to get a read on, you know, the, how everybody's doing and mm -hmm. what's happening. Well, I mean, it's part of you, you, a bike shop could be like a barber shop or something. You know, I, I, there's no taboo discussions in my shop. Uh, we talk about all kinds of things. I'm, I'm open to that. Uh, I like to build rapport with people and, you know, get to know them a little bit because I'm part of a community. So you have to act like it. I'm not just a technician. Right. So, you know, over time I've done that as a habit and you do get, get that sense from people that the, it's a, it's a growing concern and, you know, it, it affects everybody. So if you, uh, work for a place and the demand for your services go down, you know, you may get your hours curtailed or you may get let go. Like one of my friends, he fixes um, fryers and stuff in fast food restaurants. Well, they're, they're, fast food restaurants are down 65%. Hmm. So his business is down accordingly. Hmm. So he's, he's suffering, you know, um, and if you look at big business, big businesses, they have like a three, 4% profit margin. So this, this downturn can be catastrophic. It could put someone over the edge. So you could start seeing massive uh, shutting down of businesses. You're already seeing it now, right? Um, I was talking with some of my buddies. We were doing our Coaster Break Challenge, and one of them said that uh, Yelp, who are a bunch of villains, but I won't get into that with you right now. That's a lengthy rant. Uh, <laughs> um, anyway, they said that 40% of the businesses they had listed are marked now as permanently closed. Wow, 40%. Yeah, so you got to think that they were probably marginal, like they were struggling already. Mm. And this pushed them over the precipice of, of staying in business or not. And so they're gone. But you think the business owner and if they had any employees and then now those employees don't have money, so they're not going to go out and buy new shoes or get a haircut or, you know, use, do the basic things that life entails and they're going to start watching where their money goes and they're going to cut out all the things that are frivolous first, you know, and get down to necessities 
and and so you know eating out that's that's not necessary so that's way down as a consequence but not bikes for now for now i think uh if we get a two percent uptick in business that would be really good probably two percent of the people that are fixing their bikes now are going to stick with it and be like oh this is cool i rediscovered this i ride my bike to work or i can go to the store and it's so easy and you know it's a mile away or you know this kind of thing and 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 you know rediscover the joy of it and, and the utility of it that would be really neat but i don't think a lot of people will stick with it you know i mean how many gym memberships are sold versus how many people actually go? Huh. Uh, yeah. I don't know if that's comparable to, but what, cause once you find out that, you know, you can bike to your store and put food on it. I mean, that's, yeah, I don't know. I maybe once people are up, uh, up and running again, they'll, they'll drop that habit. Yeah, I think so. Uh, like you could look at, um, uh, what was it? Uh, Cuba. Like they had a big embargo on fuel. So everyone rode a bicycle because it, gas was very expensive. And then once the embargo was lifted and they were able to get fuel, their, uh, everybody went back to driving a car. <laughs> you know? It's not for everybody. <laughs> I mean, our our society is one of the most obese societies in the world. So, but but maybe, maybe it's like you said, it's a market thing. It could be. It's hard to sell. I mean, obesity. Is it a what? Market thing. A market thing. Well, it could be. I, I just that that maybe that's a different issue. I think it's just how people spend their their leisure time and their diet and whatnot. So more than more than anything uh people now are very sedentary you know they they like to be passively entertained and netflix and video games and stuff like that and and video games especially are very rewarding they're they're engineered in such a way that you get like a little cookie mental cookie every so often doled out in the perfectly timed fashion to keep you playing so um that that's a that's very clever, you know. But uh, getting to the point where you can really enjoy bike riding is is a very deferred gratification sort of thing. I mean, you're going to spend months being miserable and your butt hurting and sweating and not liking that and stuff. And you know, once you really get fit, uh, you can get a lot out of it. But that takes years and years and years of of really sucking at it and being miserable. <laughs> so. That's fine. I didn't, I haven't thought of riding a bike as the type of thing that you really have to master, but um, I guess to do it at the level you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, riding up and down the block is fine, but, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's most bike trips are probably, you know, sub three miles, I would say 90 something percent of them are probably in that, that category. But uh I mean, most of my customers just go to that, that big park by me, Balboa Park. Mm -hmm. And that, that's like my average customer is what I call like a light recreational rider. They're going to go to the beach. 
or they're going to go to Balboa Park. And, you know, if you do the whole thing, it's five miles. And they pro most people probably don't ride all the way around it. You know, so they ride around for a mile or two, and then that's it. That's good. And that's fine. It's great. You know? But to, to get it to where it becomes a utility thing, and you're like, well, it doesn't make any sense to drive here because I could ride my bike there in the same amount of time or less time even mm -hmm. and save money on gas and whatnot. So, you know, there's that. It gets uh, to but making that transition, I'd say maybe 2% like really are really going to stick with it. So it's interesting because, it, it, you know, we're talking about like market or what's practical really. And it becomes practical, but only if you can do it. Right. But practicality may not be the thing that necessarily drives the interest. Like you want to go back to the whole fixie boom. Uh, those weren't practical. Right. But uh, party, partying is what drove that. Uh, drinking and doing drugs is what drove the whole fixie thing. Cause it was like a rave scene on two wheels. Hmm. Okay. So that was like a whole big party scene that, that, and then once that died out, like the people who did that decided to, they didn't want to do it anymore. They, you know, grew, got, became grownups or whatever, you know, got married and had kids and stuff like that. And, you know, shuffled off into the doldrums of adulthood. So fixies had a thumbs down adulthood. <laughs> no. <laughs> and, uh, um, anyway, when they do that, which is fine, that's their choice. And then that, that kind of phased out, you know, and then it was gone. Right. So all those companies that, that, uh, made that stuff, if they didn't transition into other kinds of bicycles, they're gone. I, I just helped clean out a pure fix, which turned into pure cycles and they just sold their brand uh, to one of my distributors actually to become like a house brand. So, you know, they have to kind of transition with what's going on. I think you, you know, you have to evoke uh, interests and make cycling exciting and, and fun and, you know, entice people that way more than you do anything else. You can't, you can try to be practical about it and, you know, use, uh, examples to tell people how the amount of energy you say that you get out of eating a hot dog, how far you can go on that on the bike versus like a truck hauling the same amount of material, like a bag of groceries and how many hot dogs it takes to make the truck move the same distance that you went on one. And you, you can do that, but that's, you know, that's an abstract. You can't really put it in a, in a way that someone can wrap their head around. It's like they got to come to it to their own conclusion, you know? And you look at like the diet industry and there's all these diets and stuff and, you know, there are all these strategies and they all work. Like every single one of those diets that comes out will take someone who's overweight and, and they will slim down if they adhere to it, right? So uh, cycling is the same way. Like if you adhere to it, you'll get the benefits. But if you don't, if you don't stick with it, then, then you're not. And because the benefits do not come quickly, then a lot of people, they don't stick with it because they're accustomed to getting immediate gratification. And that goes back to the very first things that we talked about, which was the lack of the supply and the reactions that people are giving me are because they've been conditioned to get everything immediately. Mm -hmm.
and and that includes uh, taking care of yourself too. You can't magic wand it. You know, it's a, I tell people all the time at work, I'm all fitness is a lifestyle choice. Okay. It's not, you don't ride your bike once a week. It's insufficient. You got to do it three, four times a week, you know, and you have to push yourself into uncomfortable realms in order to really reap the benefits. And if you don't do that, then you're not going to really get much out of it. It will remain a toy instead of a tool. So you do the coaster break challenge, the coaster ride. Mm -hmm. What? Uh, so what's your bike? What your biking like? Uh, for that? Well, for you, a, for you. What's that? For you in general, like the whole thing. What What is your? My cycling. Uh, well, I ride to work every day, but it's not far. It's like a mile and a half. And then I have a bike with baskets, and I have a trailer, so I can haul things if I need to. But if I have a lot of stuff, uh, I'll take my truck, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, I go mountain biking a few times a week. At least I was until the parks kept getting closed. So I've been doing more street riding. And then uh, every Tuesday night, we have a BMX ride. And it's basically like a wacky adventure ride. We wind up uh, riding into the mountains and dropping down some crazy trail or something, you know. or mm -hmm. And then... Uh, so I do that. And then on Mondays, I've been doing really long rides. I think uh, like 40 to 80 miles. And uh, I always, typically I bring a cruiser, like a BMX cruiser bike, you know. So I have a road bike, but I don't really like road bikes. They're not very fun. You just stare at your stem the whole time. It's not very entertaining. <laughs> I like to look around and check out the scenery. And, you know, I like nature and sunsets and sunrises and, you know, looking at stuff and, you know, that's, that's a big part of it for me. So you, you look around more on a BMX or yeah. Cause you're upright. Oh, I see. Yeah. But you know, it has 26 inch wheels or whatever. So, and then, uh, yeah, I do trail riding and I organize a lot of group mountain rides. Um, and I organize a lot of events all through the year. So like, I've always got some wacky thing going on. So right now we're right in the tail end of the coaster break challenge. And we've got one more this Sunday. Is that the coaster break challenge that uh, has been around forever? Or yeah, it's going on twelve years. And that's your but right? Yeah, I organized that. Oh, I didn't really realize that. I mean, I always talk to Chicken Leather. Yeah, he he's, he hasn't showed up to this one, but he he's normally a staple. So. Yeah. Um. So uh, what you said? It's all almost over. What it's a it's like a it's four. You do four Sundays in a row, and then then it's over. So it's like a point-based system. You get a point for finishing and more if you place. And you're not allowed to have handbrakes or gears. You just have a coaster brake, like on a beach cruiser. You know, you can use a boy bike. Wow, I can't believe I, I missed it this year. What? what uh... Well, it's, there's, well, there'll be another one in January. So I do it twice a year. And it's four weeks each time? Uh-huh, four Sundays. And so what, what has developed, like what, who comes to these? Uh, all kinds of people and they just want to have fun, I guess. Uh, there's been kind of a resurgence of, you know, what they're calling now clunking, which is what the, the Marin County guys were calling their riding, their repurposed cruisers. They were call it clunking. And uh, there's been kind of a resurgence of that in the bike world when you have full suspension carbon fiber 
mountain bikes with hydraulic disc brakes and electronic shifting and then we're at the opposite end where you've got this cruiser bike with motocross handlebars on it and the coaster brake and you're you know you're doing the same trail as the guy with the carbon fiber wonder bike and uh-huh. you know it's doable and uh, there's a lot of small like boutique builders that that make uh, stuff for coaster you know make their like high-end handmade bikes out of titanium or chromoly steel uh, you know, they take all the modern bits and stuff, but they also, you can put a coaster brake on them. So. So the coaster brake is when you, you pedal backwards. like when Stop. You... Yeah. And that's just for, it seems like a little bit like a fixie kind of a thing in the sense. Well, of... you, 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 you can coast and a fixie you cannot. Oh, so. Right. Yeah, of course. But I don't know if there's a practical reason to have a, no, a coaster brake. Well, it, it's, it's not, it's not really practical per se. You're, it is archaic, but you're, um, it stops. stops. It does. It, for that little teeny hub, the amount of stopping power you get out of it is actually pretty amazing. Uh-huh. So, uh, you know, it's a challenge. You, you, it doesn't behave the way a normal bike does. You can't do things you can with a bike with handbrakes and whatnot. And it's, it's been cool. So, um, hey. Anyway, well, um, I so guess it, it's, it's been a lot of fun. The, so, go ahead. Is there like a winner? Yeah, there's a, a series winner. There's a heat winner and a series winner. So each heat, you get a winner, and then there's a point winner at the end. So I've, I've only won a couple heats. Like we're on, this next one will be 96 heats, and I think I've won three heats maybe it's really hard well, where, does it, where does it go uh, all over i move it around it's, it's a different spot every single time and we repeat some courses but every time i have one or two new ones so, so you got to think i've i found i've i found you know, close to a hundred different loops and and trail systems in the la area around the san fernando valley and whatnot and adjacent and uh, utilize them and I'm finding new ones all the time where uh, but this is uh, like in so when you say loops and trail systems you're talking about the parks yeah all over yeah sometimes the streets mm, sometimes you have to jump on a street like to connect two pieces together yeah mm-hmm. not too often though I try to avoid uh, street as much as possible the last one we did had a street section so how many people show up? Uh, lately, I, I had I have forty one this time, mm-hmm. and then uh, last time I had fifty nine, which was the biggest it's ever been, because uh, it was on, it was on the Radivist. So yeah. we had all these like cool people show up. <laughs> so, I would have thought. Yeah. I would have thought it would be it would be uh, heavily cool people anyway. If it's like a well, there, there's there's cool, and then there's you know people who are trying too hard to be cool. I actually try to destroy cool on a daily basis as an overriding mission parameter in my life. I I completely abhor uh, I'm too cool for you kind of attitudes or. Mm-hmm. You can't do, you can't ride with us because you don't have a cool bike or it's a fixie only ride. And, you know, it's very junior high school to me. And, and I hated that when I was a kid. And I, 
it, it, it sickens me as an adult to, to deal with grownups that still behave that way. So no, I, I don't, my, my, everything I do is esoteric, but not exclusive at all. Everyone's welcome to show up to anything that I organize. It has its own level. You know, Coaster Bay Challenge is very hard, physically demanding, uh, dangerous. People have gotten hurt really bad doing it. So, hmm. it, you know, it has its perils, uh, but that means that it's for, a, it's for a small amount of people. It's esoteric, but it's not exclusive as long as people know what they're getting themselves into and not to be ignorant of those, those challenges. And they're more than welcome to throw a leg over a bike and, you know, get sideways with us. Get sideways. Yeah. Cause you skid <laughs> go sideways. <laughs> oh, wow. yeah. It sounds fun. It's, it's a lot of fun. The best product of this whole thing is the camaraderie between everybody is so good. Uh, you, you just have a really strong uh, bond between everybody and everybody's rooting for each other. And, and uh, it's like a non race you're racing, but at the same time you're it's, it's just so it's not meant to be taken serious. You know, like the guy who won the last, he, he cut the course and as, and you know, I found out we were talking and it was like, no, that, you, you didn't take the course. You're supposed to go down here and then do this. You're supposed to be on the street. He's like, Oh, I went over this. Well, dude, you cut the course. And he's like, Oh, well you didn't ride the race. You cut the course. You D you know, you DQ'd yourself. And he's like, ah, Oh, well, you know, you know, if it was like a real bike thing, a real race, I mean, that would be, someone would be throwing a fit. Right. Yeah. Well, the person, the person who did it is not going to, complain if they get caught right well yeah i mean it wasn't i just think that it was just it just the general attitude about everything is that it's supposed to be it's supposed to be fun and yeah. you know you're trying and you're, you're competing right and you, you know there's there's definitely people trying to win it and there there is a competitive aspect to it but at the end of the day like everybody's you know just stoked every time someone finished everyone cheered you know they clapped and stuff They're like right on and we got guys out there. One guy's 70 years old and another guy's 74 Whoa. and uh, they both do it. So it's uh, it runs the eight or runs the gamut, you know, of ages and stuff. But you have to have a coaster break. Right. But I have loaner bikes. Oh, okay. So I mean, all the excuses are gone. I have <laughs> seven loaner bikes. I have extra helmets. Uh, so, you know, you just show up. When's the next one? It's this Sunday. This Sunday. Okay. Mm -hmm. And where and what time? Well, it's on my website, atomiccycles.com. I have a, a meet point, and uh, we meet at 7 in the morning and roll out at 8. I'm sorry. You have a meet point, and then it froze. It, we meet at 7 in the morning at the meet point, and then we roll out at 8. Cool. Well, I'm glad I... I'm glad I uh, talked to you for long enough to for you to bring up the coaster the coaster ride. Yeah, it's been fun. Um, it it's gotten more legs than a lot of the other stuff. I put way more energy into. Huh. Funny, funny how that happens. Well, you never know what people are gonna gonna glom onto. The last one, I mean, I had guys come all the way from Kansas City to come out and race with us. 
And then I had a, a guy come from Japan to come check it out. Huh. I mean, that was just otherworldly, you know, you just think like this dumb thing that you do, you know, you're just doing this silly thing and then people know about it all over the world. And wow. uh, it's kind of funny. <laughs> How was the word getting out to Japan? I guess uh, inter internet, you know. Hmm. So, so atomic cycles. You probably got to get started, right? Well, it's almost nine. I have to pay my sales tax for this quarter. That's what I was doing this morning. I spent two hours adding up uh, uh, sales for the last three months. Are you doing? Better or worse now? Oh, I'm, I'm killing it. I'm making stupid money right now. Oh. No. But, I mean, there's, there's you know, it's good. There's a trade-off. I mean, I, I, have, I have never been this tired in my entire life or had to work this hard in my entire life. You know, like a regular job, you get a couple 10, 15-minute breaks and a lunch, and it's like, I don't get any of that. I get there, and I put a bike in the work stand, and I just, I'm in front of that thing and then until it's time to go home and then I go home and you know Sunday was a good example uh I normally have boundless energy so we did the coaster break challenge so I was up at like five and I'm loading the van we do the race I go to the shop well I had to run home because during the race my cutoff jeans I was wearing got caught in my seat and I ripped them off and so the belt was holding on the tatters of my jean shorts, whatever they are. So I had to run home and get another pair of pants or whatever before I went to work in my underwear. And, um, and then I drove my van there because uh, I didn't have time to unload it and I didn't want anybody to steal the bikes. Right. So, and then I went to work and just, it was super busy all day long, just person after person after person, you just constantly, you know, taking in repairs and, and trying to get stuff done in between everything. And the phone's ringing constantly, which, I, you know, I just don't have time to answer. And uh, I came home and uh, my front, one of my friends who took photos, he brought me a disc of all the, the pictures and I started to upload them. And I had found a bunch of old jazz records on the side of the road when I was riding around and uh, I started to listen to them and I put my feet up and then I woke up and it was 11 o'clock at night. Oh my God. From when? From like five thirty, Whoa. Or six. Cause I had to unload the van when I got home and that's my trash night. So I had to take out all the trash. So I was like, don't sit down. Cause if you do, you're not going to get back up. And so I did all these chores. I put everything away. And then I was like, Oh, let's listen to this record. And I woke up, it was 11 o'clock and I got up and I went to bed. So, and I just slept for like, you know, 14 hours or whatever, 16 yeah. hours, not 16, about 14 hours or something. So, and that's, that's, that's very uncharacteristic for me. Normally I, I don't do things like that. You know, I'm constantly making things and doing things. So, so, you know, it, there's, it's, it's, um, it's been a challenge, but I think it's just a surmountable challenge and you just, you know, try to maintain your character. If you have character, then you, you maintain it. Right. And you, mm -hmm. you know, I've like, I, I have that internal dialogue with myself. Oh, you haven't eat You're grumpy. You could tell you're grumpy, so you know keep your mouth shut because this guy's trying to haggle with you over a three dollar patch kit, and you know you want to hit him in the head with a ball peen hammer, or at least tell him to fuck off. 
but you don't, right? Right. You just take it. You go, no, man, it's three bucks, okay? If you don't got $3, then you have a good day, all right? Well, that's that's a that hasn't changed, I guess. No, no, the haggling is constant. But I have that on my website. Like, don't bother, because <laughs> the answer is always no. Well, uh, so website, uh, Paul uh, Atomic Cycles dot yeah dot com yeah Atomic Cycles dot com. Mm -hmm. You still do the chopper covers, right? No, I I folded that in 2015. I did it for 15 years. Wow. And uh, twice a year. And that was like a Herculean effort. But um, like the bike scene had gone down, you know, the, the amount of people that were riding bikes, it kind of had a crescendo with the, or, you know, hit its apogee with the whole fixie thing. And then I, I had a lot of people and that event required about 150 people to have the right amount of energy to sort of make it work. Mm. And then once I got down to like 50 or 60 people showing up, uh, it took, it takes two months to put together each event of, of building things, tall bikes and Ram bikes and, you know, fixing stuff and, and then posters and buttons and flyers and making food and route maps and da, 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 da. And you put it all together and it takes me about two months to make it all happen. And then, uh, you know, we destroy everything and then I have to sweep the whole place and put everything away, which is fine. Uh, but event, what I noticed is that I had pretty much lost out to narcissism. Uh, everybody was more interested in staring at their cell phones than uh, having fun. So, you know, the, uh, the cult of the self is now uh, uh, in its ascension. Hmm. So I couldn't really compete with that. So people were like broadcasting themselves at... Yeah, they were just st staring at screens, at whatever the fuck is on there. I don't own a cell phone, so I... I don't understand it. And I think it's, I, uh, I think uh, cell phones cultivate terrible behavior in people and, and uh, I want nothing to do with it. So. Yeah. Well, I'm getting sucked in. I got a, a lot, a lot of the time, but my screen time was down 15% according to my iPhone uh, last week. Well, it's just how much of your life force you've squandered. <laughs> I mean, um, one of my buddies is like, how do you get all this stuff done? I'm all, well, I don't have a cell phone. I don't have a television. I don't have Facebook. All right. So, you know, I entertain myself by doing stuff. Yeah. So that that's why I'm productive because I'm not squandering my time doing things that are passive. You know, raking leaves is a more rewarding activity to me than looking at Instagram. All right. Yeah. You, you could, that kind of attitude could make America great again. Well, I, I don't know. I don't think anybody should live the way I live. It works good for me, but uh, most people, uh, it would probably crush them. <laughs> I'm way too hard on myself. Uh, one of my friends said I make ants look lazy. So <laughs> I, <laughs> he's known me like 30 years. Um, what... Um... Just back to Chupacabra, I did a, remember, uh, do you remember me covering Chupacabra one time? No, uh, because there's so much for me to do there. I have so many little tasks that I have to do to run the event. Uh, I don't even remember who shows up or doesn't. Well, because I did a story, you were dressed as a giant Elvis and you were... Uh... Oh, that's the one where the, where the LAPD, the, the vice squad came and surrounded us 
Yeah. And then they came with a police helicopter and everything. Right. And I, I, I remember I talked the cops out of shutting us down. And, um, yeah, that was kind of funny. Um, because their, their deal is to escalate to an arrest. So I kind of use verbal Aikido with authority figures and I know how to simultaneously make them think that I'm acquiescing to their, their demands while actually doing nothing. Uh, and then uh, it was funny cause I was kind of watching all the people watching me talk to them. Cause at first they're like, fuck the pigs and da da da. And I'm like, Shh, don't, don't, don't say that. Just chill. Cause the goal is let's have our fun. Right. I put all this work into this. You put your time into it by coming here. We want to continue the event. Okay. Take your ego out of the equation. It's not about being right. It's about keeping the event going. That's huh. the important thing. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Why I let everybody go home. So I just talked to the cop and I shook her hand and the whole time I'm holding that bowl of a uh, good and plenty's and it said like RX on it, you know, cause Elvis was a big pill popper right. and I was talking to her and talking to her and then I looked at people's faces and, and first they, they were kind of confused and then their mouths were all agape, you know, cause they, they couldn't really figure out what I was doing. And then, uh, and then they left <laughs> and all, what'd you do? I'm all, I saved the event. That's what I did. That was the, that was the goal. You know, yeah. you don't, it wasn't about being right. Okay. Someone saw it on Craigslist or something. It didn't, was an Elvis fan and was offended. Oh, is that what and then they, and then they called the cops and then they came, you know, and then some people got alcohol tickets and they were trying to whine to me about it. It's all, you're a big boy. You're drinking in public. You got what you got. So, right. Oh, right. Yeah. Nobody made you put a beer in your hand. That's your choice. Right? So, but, uh, you know, the amount of money they spend to surround me and everything versus like the four or five alcohol tickets they handed out, they, that was a losing day for the taxpayer right there. Right. <laughs> wow. So Chupacabras is, is, uh, is no more. Yeah, Chopper Cabras. Oh yeah, chopper cars cuz you cuz you make you put together it was a freak bike ride. Yeah, basically. And that's how I kind of got my start into bikes. So was doing that. I was in this punk band and then after practice one night me and the guitar player made a chopper cuz he had a welder. And he was from like uh San Francisco and and you know Burning Man like real early Burning Man guy and stuff and so that kind of culture was there and they he he showed it to me and I had seen some of that stuff in the nineties when I went up there for an art car show of all things. And, uh, um, yeah, it was crazy. Anyway, it stuck in my head because at that art car show, there were a bunch of like weird bikes this guy made. And I didn't even look at all the art cars. I made like one pass and I spent the entire show riding these bikes around. Yeah. Totally enthralled by them. So, and that's, that's kind of how that, that kicked that off because I was riding my you know 20 inch BMX bike with my you know friends we were all like little Hesher children in the 80s and we still had our old red lines and stuff well they all did I had a you know like a shitty bike or whatever and but we were riding like every Sunday and then I showed up on a chopper and they're like that's lame and da 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 and they're all making fun of me and then all the girls that we would see like oh I like your bike I like your bike and then they all wanted choppers so that's how that whole thing started and and we formed Chopacabras from that and so on. 
So no more chopper rides then? No. I mean, a lot of those dudes, uh, they moved out of state or they don't do anything anymore. I still got a chopper, you know, but I haven't ridden it in a long time. I mean, I'll never get rid of it. So, yeah, I think it just kind of had its its trajectory, you know. You, you did it, and it was good. Um, I know people, they told me that they met their significant other there, and they're married now, you know. So they found love because of Chopper Cabras. And um, some people moved to Los Angeles from another part of the country because of Chopper Cabras, I was told. Um, so that's cool. I mean, you, you know, you had, you had some little effect, you know, on people positive and people still come into this day and go, Oh man, I remember those. I remember this and we did that. And then I was like, Oh cool. Well, you had fun. And, you know, they have some fond memories and that's nice. So it's all, it's all coaster breaks now. Well, I have a full event calendar. I have something every month, but I've altered my events to kind of cater to smaller groups because that's what's going on right now. Hmm. Those big mass rides like Crank Mob and Midnight Riders and that stuff's all gone, you know. I mean, they, they, that no one's doing anything like that anymore. Well, you're also not supposed to, right? You're supposed to have, what, gr gatherings of uh, no more than eight? Is that it? Well, now, but even, even pre-COVID times, yeah. the, those, those rides had gone the way of the dodo, so... You know, um, Coaster Break Challenge probably is the biggest numerical participation that I get um, now. And then I have other things that I do. I do like a big road ride every year and a big cruise every year. And I do a single speed race every year and a vintage mountain bike race every year, a side hack race, you know, a BMX bike with a sidecar. Um, we do this thing called Bomb Squad where we take 16-inch kids' bikes and we go downhill huh. all in mass, you know, and you're not allowed to improve them, really. You know, you have to just kind of ride. It has to be a piece of shit. Yes, you can't fit on it. None of us can. So you got like full motorcycle leathers and a big helmet, and then you're on this little pink bike with tassels. And, you know, it's funny. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Is there – so can I see the full – uh schedule or there yeah it's on my website and there's a thing that says event calendar click me or whatever and it shows you everything so we do like a mount wilson ride on thanksgiving last time it was in a snowstorm it was crazy and then uh um you know yeah i've got stuff going on i mean all the time we do a ninja battle where you dress up like a ninja we go to a park at night and you have foam swords and shurikens and then you're on your bike and then you, you would battle huh. And uh, that last time we had a pretty good turnout for that. It was hilarious. It uh, sounds like it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's fun. It, that, and then I do this thing in my yard called the death moto, which is kind of like the last vestige of the Chopacabra's uh, ethos, you know, which is just like ultra violence on bikes. And uh, you, you, I have a BMX track in my backyard. And so it's like a demo derby rules. You got a 30 second downtime. So 24 laps is one mile. And uh, you ride, uh, you just, you ride until you can't no more. Either you break or the bike breaks and it's an elimination. Uh -huh. Who's ever left is there. And there's no rules except that you're, if you're out for 30 seconds, you're out. So like you, you, people throw their bikes. I've been hit with fucking chairs. Um, you know, you get elbowed, you get shoved in the bushes. Uh, people kick you, you know, 
and just don't take it personal. Just leave it in the ring or whatever. People take that seriously. Yeah, it's fun, but it's rowdy. Like if you're sensitive and like you can't shrug off, like getting whacked in the face with something that you, you should sit on the sidelines and just watch. Wow. (laughs) That's a hardcore, right? Yeah, that's pretty hardcore. That's like a whole weekend. We do this thing called scumbag weekend. I'm in this mountain bike club called the scumbags and that's we do the death moto and then we do a night ride and the next day we do a morning ride uh so we do like a whole weekend of events so and when when is that that's in october that's on the event calendar okay so and it's just you over there huh no you're not you're not hiring people I'll, i'll i will not pay someone to do something slower and worse than i can do it for free so the reason, one of the reasons why I think I've been successful is that my overhead is really low. So I've got, um, you know, sports authority closed, sports chalet closed, performance bikes closed way before uh, COVID, right? And those are big corporate juggernauts and they couldn't hang, you know, the little, the little dinky little bike shop, little repair shop is where it's at. So bike bikes bike sales were have been terrible before this uh, pandemic or whatever you want to call it. So you would see they would give you this. I get this dumb trade paper where they whine about how bad the bike industry is. So here's here's the number of bikes that are being sold, and here's the number that are being that are in the country. And it's been that way for as long as I can remember. So there's way more supply than there is demand for anything. So this is this is just an unusual circumstance. This isn't gonna. I don't think this is gonna stay the same, you know, forever. So they'll they'll eventually it'll things will go back to some you know some middle ground between how it used to be and how it is now. Okay. But it's still going to be the small bike repair shop that. Well, I think eventually, yeah, because I, you know, my rent's cheap. Uh, I don't have to pay anybody. Um, and when you pay someone, say if you pay someone $15 an hour, which is a pittance, you're not going to get good help because someone who really has good skills, they're going to move on to a better paying job. All right. So you're going to have people that have low experience or they're, They've got a weird circumstance where they don't need to make a lot of money and they're doing it for fun. Maybe their spouse is the breadwinner, right? Or, or they're a fuck up. And so they're still working in a bike shop when they're 50 years old, making $15 an hour. So you're not going to get, uh, you're not going to get people that are, you know, that are real good, like quality workers, so you're going to be cycling through people a lot, I, I, I think. And for every dollar that you pay that guy, you're, you're paying another dollar in, in upkeep on that employee. You have a workman's comp and insurance and, and whatnot. And so, you know, you're burning 30 bucks an hour to have a guy stand around and do nothing if there's nothing to do. Mm-hmm. So you have slow days. I mean, I've still had days where I've made $6 the whole day. I sold one inner tube the whole day on like a rainy day. Yeah. Right. I still have those days after all this time. So if you're a big shop, 
and you're paying two, three grand, four grand a month in rent, you know, and then you've got a mechanic and a sales guy and you're the owner. So, you know, you're burning 60 to $100 an hour doing absolutely nothing. Right. Right. So how, that's why they have to charge what they charge. And I charge way less because I don't have to, and I want to make bikes accessible to people, you know, and and in 2017, Huffy sold 700,000 Cranbrook Brook beach cruisers. Wow. 700,000. How many Pinarello dogmas were sold? 200, 500. So, you know, who are you going to go for? Who sells more bikes? Huffy, Walmart, yeah. or, or um, you know, even Trek, who's a big brand, or a small boutique brand like SomaFab or something. How many bikes are they going to sell in a year, right? How many people, how many people are they putting on bikes? And, and those higher tier bikes, all those people already have multiple bikes. That's not their only bike, typically. Right. They're avid cyclists. They got more than one. Mm. But, you know, who's getting people really out there? Well, it's Huffy. Hmm. Huffy's putting people on bikes. So you're not most most people are most serious bike people are anti anti Huffy. They are, I you know, and I, I Huffy is actually one of the most rigorously tested bicycles in the entire bike industry because the people that they're selling it to don't know anything about bikes, don't care about bikes. They just want to ride around the park or whatever. You know, when they when they they get it, they're going to throw it on the ground. They're going to run it into a curb. Uh, it's going to be thrown in the side of their garage. They're going to drop a you know, a laundry basket on it or a bag of cement or hit it with a car when they're trying to park, and they're going to fuck it up. And it needs to withstand the abuse of someone who doesn't really know the nuances of the mechanism. So they, they hold up. Hmm. They, they're tested rigorously because they do not want to get sued into oblivion they have to be sturdy. I mean, I won a mountain bike race on a Huffy. You know, I, I beat guys with $3,000 mountain bikes. So this so. is turning the, what people tell me I'm on its head here. They, I'm always told don't buy a uh, Walmart bike. Well, you can. It's a cheap tool, and you're getting the lowest quality version of the tool that you can buy. What happens with those is that the quality of the materials is so low that they don't have a lot of longevity if you're using it on the regular to commute or whatever you're going to wear out the components very quickly so you wind up putting more money into it buying like an entry-level name brand bike like a giant or a trek or or whatever a raleigh right so you spend 400 bucks up front and 99% 99% of the people out there, that bike will last them the rest of their life if they take care of it. It'll have minimal issues. But the department store bike will be maybe $200 less. And every few months, you're going to have something. It's like, you know, owning an old Volkswagen. Like, you're just constantly having to, to tinker with it. So uh, common failings are the hubs. The bearing race is a weak material. And the ball, the ball bearings are perfected now to such a high art uh, that they're so well made, even on a cheap bike like that, they're very hard metal and they just burn through the bearing race and then it ruins the rim. Hmm. So, and then the cranks, a lot of times they're installed uh, crooked. 
So there's, there's that, there's, you know, there's stuff like that, like the, the lack of care and assembling the things, the forks come, you know, I see them, they're backwards and stuff all the time and shit like that. But ultimately for light riders, there's nothing wrong with any of that stuff. You know, once, once you start becoming avid, then you need something to kind of meet your needs. And then a department store bike isn't a good fit, but I'd say for your, the bulky, the people that ride a bike on a semi-regular basis, a department store bike is fine. Um, you know, okay. I mean, if I ride one, I'm going to mess it up because I ride hard. Like I, you know, I can do 80 miles. Okay. So, you know, I can ride a uh, single speed on, on a flatland street gear and, and climb mountains on it. Okay. But that I'm like a little teeny percentage of people that can do that. So if I buy a bike from Walmart, of course, I'm going to ruin it because I'm going to be pushing it way beyond what your average person is going to push it. So if you if if a a Walmart bike is going to be okay for somebody who's like not a serious rider, right? Yeah. And that's most people that ride bikes. Okay. So this advice to not buy a Walmart bike is not for everybody. It's of course it's not for everybody. Uh, well, you might not want to support Walmart too. Well, no, you you don't. <clears throat> And I guess that's like a whole different discussion is, is, is where this stuff comes from and how it's made. And um, I don't think you can buy anything new without damaging the environment. But at the same time, if you don't buy things new, then you damage the economy. <laughs> so you're in, a, you're in a paradox there. What do you do, right? I mean, I buy used things all the time i've never owned a new car i mean i haven't bought a pair of shoes in 10 years you know i just people it bothers people that my shoes are ratty and they give me free shoes i don't i mean i don't care because i destroy the clothing that i wear i weld i'm underneath a van or something trying to fix it and i'm covered in gas and grease and i'm working on greasy shit all day at work and you know stuff doesn't last long but there's just so much excess material things in our society if you don't care what you look like or you know you're not trying to be a fashionista or whatever then you it doesn't make any difference so since those mechanisms hold no power over me i don't give a shit what i wear my socks don't match one of my buddies owns a laundromat he's like you want socks they're orphan socks i'm like yeah whole trash bag full of socks free socks i don't buy socks why who cares if one's pink and one's green like i don't give i mean it just doesn't mean anything to me right then i saw that in the dollar store you could buy two mismatched socks brand new no. i was like that's lame you're trying too hard i'm just doing it out of a pragmatism and economy i'm not doing it to like say oh look at me i'm weird you know i mean anybody that knows me knows i'm weird so who gives a shit <laughs> So, uh, wow, I think we've, we've really, we've come to, we've come to know you in this, in this, uh, session here. Perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Um, anything else you want to get out there? Mm, answer uh, your phone. Answer your phone. So annoying. Especially if it's, if it's Atomic Cycles calling. 
No, just why do you have it if you're not going to answer it? Riddle me that. Well, sometimes if it's an unidentified number and you don't You're know. not being hunted by the FBI, are you? Well, you get that, that pause and then they, they say, uh, all de Valera. Right. So then you, and you go, oh, well. And the thing is, is that no one forces anybody to buy that technology. Yeah. Okay. You're not, there's not a press gang out there making you sign up for Nextel or whatever. That was a conscious, willful choice on you as the consumer. You chose to consume a product and then you don't use it in a way that is intended, which is to communicate with people. So you're using it to build this phony fortress around yourself instead of making a bridge. And then you, you don't communicate with people. So these communicative mediums that we have, all this space age technology is bullshit because people use it to build walls around themselves instead of bridges. So it's counterproductive. And it goes against the original intentions of the device. It's like use, trying to use a bicycle as a weed whacker, okay? It's not what it's for. So answer your phone. Oh, if you can't handle that, you be like me and you don't own a cell phone and you let people leave you messages and you call them back when you have time. That's called communication. Open up the pathways to communication. That's all. You could do that. And people want to act like they're royalty and they can't be bothered. And if you can't be bothered, then why have it in the first place? Yeah, I'm going to leave my phone at home. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you were a neurosurgeon and in a hundred mile radius, you were the only person that had that esoteric skill set, you know, or you were Batman or something, then I can see where people actually needed to get a hold of you at any given point in time. And, and that connectivity was vital to what you did. But for most of us, you know, lowly plebes, it, the opposite is true. All right, who should I interview next? Uh, I don't know, who have you interviewed? Oh, who have I interviewed? I what about Chicken Leather? Yeah, I should interview him. I haven't interviewed him in, you know, he helped start the show he right i remember doing one with like a jim c a long oh, time ago at the very beginning kill radio yeah kill radio that was it yeah uh yeah you're right that's who next for sure yeah him or how about jim c he's he's moved he lives in the east coast now yeah we had one up with him not that long ago oh, okay cool um gee who else i don't know who else is still doing stuff well, that's the question. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's new people that we don't know. Uh, yeah, got to get out, look out there, and see what's going on. So, in the real world. Yeah, yeah, out there, outside your door. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Paul. For, You're welcome for coming on Zoom. I know it was a that was a challenge. Yeah, yeah, we we surmounted it though. All right. All right. Have a great day. All right. You too. Okay. See ya. I rise in the morning and greet the day. Pull out the bike and I'm on my way. And transportation shows I care. Every turn of the pedal cleans the air. Green in the green. I'm saving the planet. Just like my friends Dale, Sean, Toby, and Janet. No greenhouse gas. A tiny carbon footprint up your ass.
Thanks for listening to this episode of Bike Talk. If you want to hear more, go to kpfk.org, navigate to programs, and choose Bike Talk. On the Bike Talk page, click on the archives link to play or download shows posted in the last four months. Go to biketalk.com and copy or click on the RSS link to subscribe. Our Twitter handle is BikeTalkPFK. On Facebook, we are Bike Talk. You can become friends and join our group. 